afternoon, ladies. I am Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute. Thank you all for coming today, and welcome to our June Conservative Women's Network. Special thank you to Bridget Wagner, who is co-host here. She is the new vice president of the Heritage Foundation. And Becky Norton Dunlop, who used to be vice president, is now the Reagan Fellow. Congratulations. And we've had a wonderful partnership with the Heritage Foundation, putting these on almost every single month for 17 years. What great fun. I'm glad to introduce today's speaker, Hannah Smith, who will discuss how the courts have become a major battleground in our nation's policy debates, and she'll address some of the key issues playing out in the courts today. She'll also tell you a, bit, a little about her own life, which is very, very interesting. Hannah Smith is a senior counsel at the Beckett Fund. She joined the organization in 2007 following two clerkships at the U.S. Supreme Court for Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, Jr. Hannah was a member of the Beckett legal team that secured victories in several U.S. Supreme Court religious liberty cases, and she contributed to many other Beckett Supreme Court filings. She's been featured on numerous television and radio programs, as well as publications she's written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Hannah received her BA from Princeton University and graduated with honors from Brigham Young University Law School. Following law school, between, in between clerkships, she was an associate in private practice at firms Williams and Connolly and Sidley Austin in Washington, D.C., representing clients before state and federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court in civil, criminal, and constitutional cases. Hannah served as a full-time volunteer missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints in France and in Switzerland. She currently serves as a member of the J. Reuben Clark Law Society International Board and as a member of the Deseret News Editorial Advisory Board. She writes mostly on religious liberty issues in the Deseret News. Hannah and her husband, John, have four children from 10 to 2 and a wonderful family. Please join me in welcoming Hannah Smith. It's so nice to be with you all today. I love looking out over this room and seeing your beautiful faces and your optimism and uh, the beautiful smiles that are here. So thank you so much for coming. And I hope to be able to um, have a good discussion with you all today um, about a lot of different issues. Uh, they asked me to speak about my experience in Washington as a lawyer, working on some of these interesting constitutional legal issues. Uh, and then my impressions of the Supreme Court uh, from the perspective of a former clerk. And then we're going to have some time for Q&A at the end, so I'm happy to answer any questions you may have about work-life balance and any other issues that you're thinking about as you're beginning your careers and uh, trying to uh, make a course for your life. Um, I also want to talk to you a little bit today about women in the defense of religious liberty. And I'm going to do that in the context of a couple of our cases, talking about how women were instrumental in raising their voice in defense of our Constitution and defense of our uh, rights to religious freedom. So a quick disclaimer before I start, and that is that I am here speaking on my own. I'm not uh, representing the Beckett Fund in its official capacity, so these are my views and not the views of my employer. Um, 
So I want to start out a little bit about the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And Bridget Hassan over here is well familiar with the Beckett Fund, as it was her father who founded the Beckett Fund back in 1994. Uh, and so for the past 22 years, the Beckett Fund has been in the business of defending religious liberty for people of all faiths. We like to say from A to Z, from Anglicans to Zoroastrians and everything in between, including Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Native Americans, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. Um, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest law firm based right here in Washington, D.C., uh, and we work in the courts of law around the country. Uh, in the court of public opinion, which is becoming increasingly more important, and also in academia around the country and around the world. So is religious freedom threatened today? You bet it is. Absolutely. We see it every time we open up the newspaper or read online. Um, but I don't want to talk today about all of the negatives. I don't want to be... Uh, a gloom and doom here talking about how our First Amendment freedoms are being whittled away and how we're losing our, our religious liberty rights and how the next 10 years look gloomy. I'd like to talk about some stories of hope, some stories of victory, and inspire you with some of the reasons why we at Beckett have cause to be optimistic, uh, why we think that we're winning a lot of these battles and we think that we can continue to do so over the next uh, near term. So I hope these stories will show you how standing up for our Constitution and for religious liberty matters. It matters not only because it yields success in courts of law, but it, more importantly, it means triumph in the lives of everyday Americans. And I think that's what you'll see in the stories that I, a couple of stories I'm going to share with you today. So in the last five years, I've worked on all four of our Supreme Court cases, and our legal team has had enormous success in achieving positive outcomes for our clients. Um, and I want to talk about just two of those cases uh, a little bit in depth today, um, two of them that I think you've probably heard of, the Hobby Lobby case and the Little Sisters of the Poor case at the Supreme Court. And I'm seeing some heads nod out there, so this is a good thing. Um, First, let's start with Hobby Lobby. So 40 years ago, when Barbara Green and her husband David started their family craft store in their garage making picture frames, uh, they promised that they would run their business in a way that reflected their Christian religious beliefs. And 40 years later, they've stayed true to that promise. Although their craft stores, named Hobby Lobby, are now a national chain and a household name, uh, Barbara and David still adhere to those core religious values that uh, drove their business from the beginning. They still care for their employees by closing on Sundays and paying starting salaries that are twice the minimum wage. And the Greens are also pro-life. And because they're pro-life, they have excluded abortions from their generous employee health plans. So when the Affordable Care Act rolled around and the HHS mandate was issued and the federal government ordered them to cover these life-ending contraceptive drugs in violation of their deeply held religious beliefs, the Greens fought back. And as you know now, they won. The Supreme Court protected Barbara's business from crushing fines and told the government that it had to find another way to accomplish its objectives without forcing Barbara to violate the religious principles that motivated uh, the founding of her company. 
So Barbara uh, is a wonderful woman, and during the course of the Hobby Lobby case, she really stepped forward and became the spokeswoman for this legal case. Um, she uh, got out in front of the microphones, she spoke to the media, she appeared in videos, she led the crowd of supporters on the Supreme Court Plaza the day of oral argument, and she recalled at one point during one of the videos that we recorded with her in it, she recalled the story of Esther, who was prepared for such a time as this. And I think that story really motivated her and really helped her find the courage to stand up and be the spokesperson for this cause. And she found her voice in the defense of religious liberty. And because of Barbara's courage, religious businesses now, not just Hobby Lobby, but religious businesses around the country are protected by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from violating their religious beliefs and uh, the HHS mandates crushing fines. So let's talk about the Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, the Little Sisters are an international order of Roman Catholic nuns who spend their lives serving the elderly poor. The Little Sisters will sit by the bedside of their elderly uh, patients and they will hold their hand and they will sing to them until they breathe their last breath. These women are doing God's work. And their Catholic faith infuses everything that they do, including the healthcare plans that they provide to their employees. In fact, their benefits provider is the Christian Brothers Trust. And that's a Catholic organization that provides the Little Sisters and more than 400 other Catholic organizations, charities, with healthcare plans that reflect their common faith. So again, we go back to the Affordable Care Act and the HHS mandate, and when the federal government ordered the Little Sisters to let their Catholic healthcare plan be used as a vehicle to deliver these contraceptives, these emergency contraceptives, uh, in violation of their faith, the Little Sisters of the Poor fought back. And even though lawyers for the federal government said these nuns were fighting invisible dragons, I'm not joking, they actually said that in a legal brief, that the Little Sisters were fighting invisible dragons, the Little Sisters persevered, and just last month the Supreme Court granted them a three-part victory. So what happened last month uh, for the Little Sisters? There was a unanimous per curiam opinion where the Supreme Court vacated all of the courts of appeals opinions that had gone against the religious liberties in the courts below. So that means they just erased them. The Supreme Court said they're gone with the stroke of a wand. Uh, and all of those bad opinions have been uh, erased from precedent, um, which is a good thing not just for the Little Sisters, but it's also a good thing for future religious liberty cases that would have been stuck under those bad precedents. Second part of this great victory, the Supreme Court forbade the IRS from levying millions of dollars of fines against the Little Sisters. Now to me, this is just incomprehensible how the federal government could threaten the Little Sisters of the Poor with $70 million of fines if they refuse to cover these services in their health plans. These are sisters who, um, you know, I, I had their um, card the other day and I was looking at it and uh, one of the Little Sisters, the title under her name was Begging Sister. These are sisters who go around begging for money to support their ministry to help the elderly poor. 
And the idea that the IRS would come in and levy $70 million of fines, which would effectively crush their ministry, is just appalling to me. So the Supreme Court said you cannot levy those fines against the Little Sisters, uh, which was a huge victory for them, obviously. And then the third part of the victory was that they told the lower courts to provide the government an opportunity to arrive at an approach that would accommodate the Little Sisters' religious beliefs. So going forward, there will be an opportunity for the government to change its position and to accommodate the Little Sisters' religious beliefs. Um, Again, like Barbara Green in Hobby Lobby, the Little Sisters were the public face of this legal challenge, of the media campaign around this legal challenge for all of the religious ministries that were challenging this HHS mandate in court. So you'll remember it wasn't just the Little Sisters case that was before the court, but it was also a group of religious universities and colleges and other religious nonprofits. Um, but the Little Sisters really emerged as the face of this uh, campaign. And what a compelling face they were. Um, the ultimate David and Goliath, right? A group of nuns uh, standing up against the federal government that has ordered them to reject their Catholic teaching. Mother Lorraine uh, and Sister Constance responded to a flood of media requests for interviews and for op-eds. And the day of oral argument, nuns and habits filled the Supreme Court Plaza with signs chanting, let them serve, let them serve. Uh, and my husband and my four children were there that day on the Supreme Court Plaza while I was inside the Supreme Court during oral argument. And they held up signs and cheered. And I thought to myself, isn't this ironic that even small children understand that the government should not be bullying nuns? <laughs> <laughs> So apart from the legal presentation of the issues before the court, both Hobby Lobby and the Little Sisters involved significant coalition building efforts to win the court of public opinion. And I want to talk a little bit about those coalition building efforts um, now, because oftentimes we think about just the legal aspect of the case, but there was a significant amount of not just uh, media efforts, but also coalition building and um, public efforts to convince uh, in the court of public opinion uh, what we were trying to argue in court. So first, this involved amassing like-minded public interest organizations that were willing to file friend of the court briefs in support of our clients. Uh, and second, it involved organizing public rallies, like the one that was held the day of oral argument at the Supreme Court. So many organizations, like uh, Claire Booth Luce and uh, others that are effective at galvanizing support of conservative, independent women, came to defend Barbara Green and the Little Sisters. Uh, organizations like Concerned Women for America, Susan B. Anthony List, Women Speak for Themselves, Independent Women's Forum, a lot of these other organizations really rallied around Barbara Green and the Little Sisters to support them, not just through friend of the court briefs, but also uh, through these rallies and through uh, public messaging about the case. And I think it's largely thanks to these hugely successful coalition building efforts that we were in large measure able to overcome the media's uh, war on women theme. If you remember how much of the media focused on uh, the, these religious groups were really waging a war against women um, and attempted to paint our side as allowing employers to come in and take away women's birth control, which was just nonsense. Uh, it was never the position of any of our clients 
that they did not uh, would not allow their uh, employees to access this contraceptive. It was always their uh, position that they just did not want to be a part of it because of their religious beliefs. So it was an honor for me to work with these inspiring women to defend their right to religious liberty at the Supreme Court. And I want to shift gears a little bit now because they asked me to speak about my experience at the court from the perspective of a former clerk and in the context of what we're seeing now uh, with the nomination and confirmation uh, issues surrounding the replacement of Justice Scalia. So um, as we've seen, the Supreme Court is now front and center in our nation's public consciousness. Uh, Justice Scalia's death in the middle of the term was a tragedy, not just for the Scalia family, for all of us who have clerked and worked at the court, but for our nation and for the future of the court. Um, and I think all of you have probably seen in the news, if you've been reading some reporting on the court's uh, recent uh, decisions, the court has had to grapple with the possibility of tie votes in several of its very high-profile cases. So a 4-4 equally divided vote means that the court affirms the lower court's opinion without creating any precedent. So it's as if the Supreme Court never got involved in the case at all, uh, and the lower court opinion stands. So we've seen several 4-4 ties in some cases this term, and we may very well see some more before the court uh, adjourns at the end of this next week and goes on its summer break. Um, but the more important question in my mind is who is going to fill this ninth seat? Um, and we're seeing now and we'll continue to see in the months to come that the current Supreme Court vacancy and the possibility of several more vacancies in the future um, is going to be a critical issue. Um, uh, in the coming months. My husband John and I were actually uh, very involved in the confirmation battle to get our former boss, Justice Alito, onto the high court. Um, so we've seen up close how this process works uh, during the confirmation uh, battle. And I thought you might be interested in just hearing a little bit about that experience um, because we'll be seeing these issues play out over the next couple of months. So when Justice Alito was nominated on October 31st, 2005, um, we organized his former clerks into an army of truth tellers. <laughs> we were the truth squad. <laughs> uh, and we were um, committed to speaking the truth about our former boss, about his judicial record, and about his temperament, and why he was supremely qualified to fill this uh, vacancy on the court at the time he had been nominated to replace Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So over the three months between his nomination and his confirmation, we as his former clerks met with senators and with their staffers, both in home states around the country and here on Capitol Hill. Uh, in states around the country, when we would meet with the senators and their staffers, we would also meet with local media and with pundits, with interest groups and concerned citizens. Um, we drafted case law excerpts highlighting his significant contributions to every area of the law. We compiled statistics about his record. We fashioned talking points to counter the ugly lies that were being spread about him, uh, this man that we all knew and deeply respected. Um, and several of his former clerks actually participated in the hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee, providing testimony about Justice Alito. And we drafted a letter of support that we uh, submitted to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Many of us became surrogates uh, in the media 
Um, I actually appeared on a C-SPAN segment uh, talking about the judge and did several TV spots for him. We gave interviews to print journalists. We wrote op-eds supporting him in newspapers around the country. Uh, and we participated in press conferences. Uh, we had one at the National Press Club. We also were invited by President Bush uh, towards the end of the process to come meet with him in the Oval Office where he thanked all of the former clerks for the great work that we had done in supporting his nominee and then invited us to join him in a press conference held at the um, old executive office building across from the White House where he stood flanked by former Alito clerks and urged the Senate to vote to confirm Judge Alito. So it was a really wonderful um, experience to stand there with these former clerks who were Republicans, Democrats, and independent uh, Judge Alito had clerks uh, that were from across the political spectrum, and all of us stand there in united support of him and his nomination to the Supreme Court. So these three intense months between October 31st and January 31st, uh, we really helped reshape the image of someone who the media tried to paint as unacceptable into the accurate image of someone who was intelligent, fair, and supremely qualified for the job. And then, of course, it was just with great joy that uh, the former clerks were able to attend the White House swearing-in where Justice Alito became the next justice of the Supreme Court. So I give you that background just to, to kind of highlight um, how these confirmation battles work, what goes on behind the scenes in Washington, why we need very committed people, not just former clerks, but there were cadres of uh, important um, uh, people in the Department of Justice, in the White House Counsel's Office, in public interest groups around Washington, including the Federalist Society, with whom I'd had a lot of contact, uh, both in law school and then during this process. Um, working to support this nomination. So it was really a, a, a large effort that included a lot of different people um, speaking up for the, the Constitution and for a, a nominee who was very well qualified to serve in, in that capacity. Um, so I'll just sort of end here by saying I, I hope for the sake of our country and for our children's future um, that the next justice will be someone who will protect and defend the Constitution and religious liberty for people of all faiths. I just want to end with a few thoughts on what all of you can do. Uh, wherever you are currently in your life, uh, wherever you see yourself going in the future, um, to protect religious liberty, because it's really important for me, for us at the Beckett Fund, that there are people like you out there who become educated on the issues, who want to stand up for religious liberty wherever you find yourself in your career. Um, so the first thing that I would encourage you to do is just become educated. You need to really learn what the issues are. And I would encourage you to go to our website, um, beckettfund.org, uh, Beckett with one T, not two. Um, Go to our website. There are a host of resources there um, that will help you really become knowledgeable on what the issues are in defending religious liberty. Uh, if you want to know more about what does the Free Exercise Clause really protect, what is RIFRA, and how does it uh, interact with the First Amendment, and what are all these state RIFRA battles that I'm hearing about in the news, and why are they so important, um, go to our website and learn more about those. Um, you'll also learn about how we defend people of all different faiths and why that's so important. Why it's so 
important to have a principled approach to religious liberty, not just for Christians, but for everyone. Um, and then I encourage you also to watch for opportunities where you can be a voice of calm and heated rhetoric. I think you need to take the opportunity to get to know your neighbors, get to know the people of other faiths that you live with, that you work with, that you may be friends with. Uh, find ways to serve with them. Uh, in my faith community, we have been very involved in building bridges with people of other faiths through service opportunities. And I found it immensely rewarding to be involved in the public affairs work of my church, such that I'm able to be friends with the Methodist pastor down the street and the uh, Church of the Brethren uh, and the uh, Muslim mosque that's near our neighborhood, and to be working side by side with them uh, in service opportunities to provide relief for refugees, for example. To We had a, a, a coat and blanket drive recently in our church congregation. Uh, these kinds of opportunities are immensely rewarding for everyone involved. And the reason why they're so important is because when you build relationships through service, then when the opportunity arrives to stand arm in arm, to defend each other over issues related to religious liberty, you already have trusting relationships that you have built with other people of other faiths, that then you can rely on those trusting relationships to stand together in the defense of these important constitutional principles and important issues of religious liberty. Um, so I'll just end there, and I will open the floor for questions. But I thank you very much for coming today, and I God bless you. I think we have some uh, microphones here, and uh, I'll let you call on people, sure. okay? Mm -hmm. If you would state your name and where you're working or your affiliation. And wait for the microphone, because this is taped, so we want to hear your questions. Don't be shy. Hi, my name is Danielle, and I'm an intern at the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute. And um, I was wondering, um, at your time um, with the fund, um, has Obamacare been the legislation that has really put the most threat to religious liberty? Um, is that the kind of legislation that you've had to work a lot with uh, countering, or has there been other legislation that has had a significant um, threat to li religious liberty in your time working in this kind of stuff? That's staff? a great question. Thank you. So I've been at the Beckett Fund for well, this is my ninth year, um, and we started the litigation against the HHS mandate back in the fall of 2011. So we've actually been litigating these cases for almost five years. So almost half the time that I've been at the Beckett Fund, we have been litigating these cases. Um, and it's been an interesting experience to see um, how this has played out because What's really interesting about this is that most of the work that has been done by the government on this is through regulations, through administrative agency regulations, right? Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, but they delegated to the Department of Health and Human Services to promulgate the regulations that would actually uh, create the HHS mandate. And um, so those regulations over this you know, four or five years we've been litigating have been changing as the department has changed the regulation to provide its so-called accommodation to change things here and there. So the goalposts have kind of been moving, which is why the litigation has been uh, going on for so long. Um, but we have dedicated a significant amount of resources to fighting the HHS mandate uh, for the last four or five years, in large measure because we think it's such a, uh, a gross overreach of federal government power. Uh, we think that um, 
the promulgation of these regulations by faceless bureaucrats who have no accountability uh, and who seek to crush, uh, you know, these deeply held religious beliefs of our clients uh, is just wrong and it needs to be countered. Um, and so we have committed a significant amount of resources to fighting that regulation. Uh, but we have also at the same time maintained a full docket of other cases. So we've been fighting, uh, you know, Mr. Nidau's uh, attempt to crush under God and the Pledge of Allegiance as he goes around the country and files lawsuits all over the place. We've been maintaining that litigation uh, throughout this time. We've also been maintaining an active docket of cases um, fighting Blaine Amendments, which are state constitutional provisions that have roots in anti-Catholic uh, bigotry that are preventing um, state governments from giving state funds to churches simply because they're religious, um, when the federal interpretation of uh, the Establishment Clause would allow them to receive those funds. So there's a lot of other cases that we've also been um, litigating at the same time, but the HHS mandate cases have really taken uh, a significant amount of resources, but also have received the most media attention, which is probably why you've heard most about them. Sure. Good question. Yeah. Hi, I'm Clarissa Sutter, and I'm an intern here at Heritage this summer. Um, I just wanted to ask you if you could speak a little bit about the balance between your professional and family life that you mm -hmm. spoke about at the beginning, and then just what really inspired you to work in the field defending religious liberty. So I'll take the last question first and then go back to the first one. Um, so I uh, became interested in religious liberty actually when I served as a missionary overseas in France. And it was after my um, graduation from college and I uh, served as a volunteer missionary, and I was in France at a time when actually the French government had created a governmental commission to monitor certain small religious groups that it found to be um, uh, different from traditional uh, faiths. And um, you know, some of those groups, my church was actually not on the list that it had compiled, but many of those churches that were on the French government's list were, you know, American churches that had come over to France to um, uh, to to proselyte and to, to establish themselves. And, and the French government just started to make life really difficult for a lot of these minority religious groups in France. And to me, that seemed really interesting as a young person. Why would the French government want to suppress um, the free and open marketplace of ideas when it comes to religious beliefs? And so I came back um, to law school and actually um, went to Brigham Young University Law School where there was a law professor who recruited me and my husband to come there to work with him on religious liberty issues. And Professor Cole Durham is an expert in international religious freedom, and he goes around the world helping uh, people in government uh, draft constitutional provisions that are more open and free to religious liberty. And so we worked with him for three years in law school, and then after I graduated from law school, came uh, back to the East Coast to clerk for Judge Alito. And uh, of course, Judge Alito has uh, a, a long uh, history of really significant opinions on uh, religious freedom that he has drafted um, as a jurist. Um, and then after that, I came to Washington, D.C., and uh, worked at a couple of law firms where they had some practice area focused on religious liberty. And so I was able to do, in addition to regular legal practice, some pro bono work on behalf of religious organizations, which was really interesting to me. And then after my clerkships on the court, um, I ended up going to the Beckett Fund because I was really interested in working with them and um, you know, promoting their mission and their, uh, their view of religious liberty. So that's sort of how uh, I became interested in religious liberty and how it tied through the rest of the phases of my life and, and how I ended up where I am now. Um, 
And as far as, you know, work-life balance, it's such an important issue and one that I know that so many of you in this room are probably thinking about, one that I certainly thought a lot about um, and still do. I think it's one that you have to think about in light of the phase of life that you're in. Um, I think for women, there are different chapters of your life, and certain chapters require much more focus and intensity um, on certain issues than on others. Um, I am a big proponent of the idea that I think women in this day and age um, have so many more opportunities and so many advantages and so many capabilities to be able to have it all um, that we need to, to work hard to, um, to, to find those opportunities where we can balance um, our family commitments with our work commitments. I love my children. They are the light of my life and I have four beautiful kids and um, you know, I cherish um, the time that I have to spend with them when they're young. It's really important to me. Um, and so finding an opportunity to work um, like I have at the Beckett Fund where I can do meaningful work and also be very committed to my family is something that was really important to me. So I just, I, I urge you to just be very prayerful and thoughtful about it. And I think that there will be opportunities and avenues that will open up before you that you didn't even plan on. <laughs> and that was certainly the case for me at the Beckett Fund. I did not seek out the Beckett Fund. Seamus Hassan called me and recruited me to come there. And it was not something that was even on my radar screen, but it was an answer to my prayer. Thank you so much for being here today. Can you hear me? All right. Um, I just wanted to ask, piggybacking off of that previous question, um, in response to all the hateful rhetoric um, going around about Sikhs, Islamic countries, um, South Asian religions in general, uh, what would you say that all of us in this room can do to step forward in bridging religions rather than dividing them and segregating? That's an excellent question. And I, um, I think it sort of ties back to what I was saying at the end of my comments, which is that I think just building bridges with relationship um, building is so important. Um, you know, working with uh, your neighbors who are uh, in a Muslim community uh, in your area to provide relief for refugees, for example. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to build those relationships and build those networks of trust. Um, I think when people get to know each other on a personal level, so many of the sort of prejudices um, fall away. Um, and so I would just say, particularly now, um, when there's so much of that rhetoric going on, I think that that's an important thing to do. Um, and, you know, certainly at the Beckett Fund, we have uh, 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 defended the rights of um, our Muslim uh, friends uh, and uh, their ability to practice their faith, their sincere faith, uh, in a peaceful way. And um, that's something that the Beckett Fund will continue to do because we believe in the right of every American to practice their faith. Hi, I'm Sophia, and I'm an intern at Heritage this summer, and I'm actually also a student at Princeton. Um, so Great. Go Tigers. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask if you had any advice for those of us who want to work um, in religious freedom issues kind of more professionally, um, and also kind of unrelated, but um, it seems like in the court of public opinion, we're losing the battle in terms of, uh, like, cases of uh, weddings now because it's being framed as an issue of discrimination. Um, 
and I guess in terms of addressing the court of public opinion, like how do you think how do you think we can address that in in love but still protect these rights and encounter the claim that this is somehow, you know, the same as like southern segregation? Sure, good question. Um, so for those of you interested in religious liberty, I would just encourage you to um, identify the various organizations like Beckett Fund that do this kind of work um, and do it well. Um, there are uh, some other organizations out there, not as good as Beckett, <laughs> but great organizations nonetheless, uh, who do great work and we are friends with and colleagues with and we uh, love to work together with on cases. So um, I say that in jest, they're great places. Um, so uh, you know, get to know those organizations and get to know what opportunities may be available for you there as well. Beckett is a pretty small shop, so we only have about, gosh, 10, 12 lawyers on staff. Um, so um, we're pretty small, lean machine, but um, uh, I think there are a lot of opportunities for you to get involved in religious liberty work, both from a legal perspective, but also from sort of a policy perspective in a lot of different organizations, like Heritage, for example, has a wonderful religious freedom shop here. So, um, and then on your second question, I think, um, you know, obviously I think these kinds of cases are going to be um, coming to the forefront more and more now, um, post-Obergefell, and um, I think um, there's a lot of really good scholarship that has been written about why um, these kinds of cases should be resolved in a way that respects the rights of both sides. Uh, the Beckett Fund actually hosted a conference many years ago now, um, uh, and we produced a book um, out of that conference, and it's called called Same-Sex Marriage and Religious Liberty Emerging Conflicts. And uh, Professor Doug Laycock of UVA Law School uh, and Robin uh, Fretwell-Wilson and Anthony Piccarello were the editors of that book. And each chapter is a, um, a chapter that has been written by a First Amendment scholar uh, from around the country talking about the kinds of conflicts that would emerge um, uh, between same-sex marriage and religious liberty. So I would encourage all of you to go on Amazon and get a copy of that book if you have any interest at all in this area, there is a great discussion in that book about the specificities of how these kinds of conflicts should play out so that each side can uh, live according to their beliefs and be respected and not discriminated against. Yes. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Rienzi, and I'm a student at American University, um, but formerly I interned for Congressman Chris Smith of the Pro-Life Caucus. Mm -hmm. um, so my question is about the future of the pro-life movement. Do you see it moving in the direction of a more like solely religious freedom issue, or do you see it more um, becoming secular and more of a, like, a human life issue as, as a movement progresses? So at Beckett Fund, we don't actually have sort of a subsection of pro-life litigation. Um, the Alliance Defending Freedom has sort of their family section and their religious freedom section and their pro-life section. Uh, we at the Beckett Fund focus solely on religious liberty. Um, so we don't um, actually uh, have positions uh, to, to answer your question on that, specifically from a Beckett Fund perspective. Um, but certainly, I think we've learned a lot of good lessons from uh, the 
uh, pro-life movement post Roe v. Wade that I think are really important for the post-Obergefell same-sex marriage context. And that is this, you know, that even though the court granted a right to abortion in Roe v. Wade, uh, following Roe v. Wade, we had significant protections put in place through legislative amendments uh, like uh, you know, Weldon and Hyde and all of these other amendments that protect the rights of religious people to not participate in abortion or activities related to abortion. So um, I think that's a really good model that actually shows that even when the Supreme Court grants the right to something like abortion or same-sex marriage, there can be, following those decisions, protections uh, legislated that will allow religious, liberty, religious people to maintain their liberty even in spite of those constitutional rights. Yeah. Anna Path, I'm with the American Principles Project. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a question, thinking specifically along the lines of the recent editorial um, by the New York Times editorial board um, denouncing the decision of a community um, in New York to allow Jewish women, Orthodox Jewish women, um, to have specific pool hours um, that were women only so they could conserve modesty. Um, can you explain a little bit about the balance between just America having a tradition of accommodating um, religious uh, differences um, and just as a, as a cultural, um, a unique cultural aspect of America and then the legal ramifications of um, actually using public hours and funds to accommodate for religious groups in that manner. Sure. Um, so I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it really goes back to sort of the fundamental principles upon which our country was founded, right? Um, because our country was founded upon the principle of religious pluralism, that this country was going to be different uh, from England and from Europe, where we allowed people of different faiths, of different um, congregations to come to live together peaceably and to allow for differences in uh, religious culture and religious faith and religious tradition um, in you know, in a way that respects all of those different differences. Um, and so I think that there has to be a way that we can accommodate uh, all of these different religious minorities who will have differing claims on our cultural expectations, right? Um, and so we see that, for example, in the case where we defended uh, goat sacrifice in uh, in Texas, right? We, we defended the rights of a Santeria priest to sacrifice small animals in his home as part of his religious tradition. Tradition, um, and now there, you know, there are a lot of people in his neighborhood and in the surrounding community who thought, well, that's you know, that's different. That's just not really traditional Judeo-Christian practice, right? That's just a different, uh, a different religious tradition that we're not quite comfortable with in our backyard. Um, but we defended that that principle because of the broader principle of the right to worship in one's own home. You know, can the government come into your home and tell you what you can and cannot do based on your religious beliefs? Um, and we were successful ultimately in the Fifth Circuit in protecting that man's right under the Texas RIFRA, um, which was a really important decision out of the Fifth Circuit. Um, so just to give you that sort of an example of where minority religious views that are sometimes not well understood or not well accepted can be the cause of tension, like the example that you raise in New York of the Orthodox Jewish uh, swimming hours. Um, and I, 
I think that you know ultimately there has to be a way that we can uh, provide for accommodations to religious minorities that protect their um, ability to practice their faith without um, having the system just completely fall apart, right? Because a lot of times what bureaucrats say is, well, if I give an exception to them, then I have to give an exception to everyone, therefore I'm not gonna give an exception to anyone. Um, and that simply can't be the way that we resolve these issues, right? We have to find a practical way that we can accommodate these kinds of religious differences um, so that everyone can live peaceably and together in the same community. Any other questions? Ask. Um, yes. I mean, you mentioned RIFRA and the Texas RIFRA law. How do you see this kind of next stage playing out with the state RIFRA laws, <coughs> the um, Freedom, uh, the First Amendment Defense Act uh, that's been um, introduced, mm -hmm. I guess, in the, the Congress? Mm -hmm. um, what do you think ultimately will need to happen for us to truly protect religious liberty? So it's been somewhat frustrating for us to see the public misconception about these state RIFRA laws um, that has developed uh, over the last couple of years. Um, just to give you a little bit of background about RIFRA and why this has become an issue. Um, so prior to 1990, uh, the Supreme Court had a legal test that it employed when evaluating whether there should be exemptions given for uh, religious exercise where the government had substantially burdened that religious exercise. So uh, there was a, a balancing test, and it was from Sherbert and Yodert, Yoder. And it said, if there's a substantial burden on religious exercise, then the, the burden shifts to the government to show that it has a compelling interest and that it's forwarding that compelling interest by the least restrictive means. And so that balancing test was quite favorable to religious litigants. Um, but in 1990, uh, Justice Scalia actually, in a case called Employment Division v. Smith, uh, held that if a law is neutral and it's generally applicable, it applies to everyone, uh, then we're not going to employ the same balancing test, um, the, the stricter standard uh, to review these claims for exemptions. Um, and that was a real jolt <laughs> in the legal world. Um, um, and following uh, Employment Division v. Smith in 1990, uh, Congress actually passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, several years later. And it was a bipartisan effort by Senator Hatch and Senator Kennedy, uh, who came together across the aisle to pass this legislation. There was only three votes against it in the Senate. Uh, so it passed unanimously in the House and was 97 to 3 in the Senate. So it was a, an extremely bipartisan effort to pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act initially. Uh, the federal RIFRA was struck down as it applied to the states in a later case called City, uh, of, Flor uh, City of Bernie v. Flores. Uh, and that decision meant that the federal RIFRA only applied to the federal government but didn't apply to the states. And so in light of Bernie, the uh, states actually kicked into gear and started passing their own state RIFRAs. So there were about, uh, there were many, many states in the late 90s, sort of 97 to early 2000, that passed state RIFRAs that largely mirrored the federal RIFRA. And what federal RIFRA did was reinstate this compelling governmental interest standard in evaluating these claims. Uh, so it, it reinstated this more favorable legal standard. Uh, and so states started doing this around the country. Uh, 
and passing state RIFRAs. In the end, there's something like 21 state RIFRAs that are now on the books. And when those initial uh, states passed these RIFRAs in 1997 to early 2000, um, there was no controversy at all because there was such a spirit of bipartisanship at that time. Uh, and both Republicans and Democrats had seen how valuable this federal RIFRA had been. Um, and so there was, it was, it was not an issue. Um, there was just no concern. Um, and it's only been really in the last three or four years um, as states have either tried to pass a new RIFRA or tried to change something about their existing RIFRA, either expand it or change it in some way, that there has been increased uh, opposition to those uh, new RIFRAs or changing of state RIFRAs. Um, and largely that opposition, I think, has come from a misunderstanding about what RIFRA does. And we actually have a website up on our um, site called RIFRA Central, and we've tried to debunk some of these myths about RIFRA and what RIFRA does and does not do. Um, and we have a fact versus fiction tab in there with some great graphics about what um, RIFRA does not do. It's not uh, uh, used as a sword to discriminate against people of uh, uh, LGBT people. Um, it's not used as a sword to discriminate against others. It's used as a shield to protect religious uh, minorities. And we have another tab on the RIFRA central page that highlights the stories of RIFRA cases from around the country. Uh, and I love this page because it shows how many different religious minorities have been protected by RIFRAs around the country. Um, Sikhs who uh, wanted to serve their country uh, faithfully in the military were protected by RIFRA uh, to be able to wear articles of faith uh, in the military uh, despite military grooming standards. Uh, Native Americans who recently were able to uh, get back sacred eagle feathers that had been confiscated by the federal government that raided their powwow to take away eagle feathers that they said were uh, not, were held in violation of a federal statute. So Native Americans whose religious practices had been protected by, um, by RIFRA. Um, a World War II vet down in Florida who was feeding the homeless and, you know, was cited multiple times by the government for violating certain, uh, certain ordinances and he was protected. Uh, by RIFRA. Um, you know, a variety of different Orthodox uh, communities, Orthodox Jewish communities that were protected by RIFRA. Um, so a variety of different faiths who have been protected by these RIFRAs around the country. And I think that just trying to dispel some of those misconceptions about what RIFRA does and does not do is extremely important. Because right now, unfortunately, I think people uh, for probably... Uh, less than pure motives are buying into this notion that RIFRA is a law that is used to discriminate rather than a law that's used to protect against a discrimination against religious minorities. Anybody else? Well, what an excellent presentation. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. We have a couple of gifts for you. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. We have. Our limited edition, Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute coffee mug. Oh, thank you. With my favorite color, purple. Funny little <laughs> observation, Mrs. Luce's. Oh, good. <laughs> what is it? They all know. No good deed goes unpunished. There you go. <laughs> Every mother of four needs a purple tote bag, huh? Excellent. Thank you. And before Bridget speaks, I want to say today is special for a number of reasons, certainly having you speak, but also I want to invite you all when we have our lunch to have a piece 
of Bridget's birthday cake. Happy, Happy birthday! birthday. <laughs> I was trying to fly under the radar, obviously, but it didn't work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank and, you so much. And just a, a little token from Heritage Foundation as well. Oh, and um, we want to invite you all to join us. We're going to be in the Kleintobe lobby, just um, out the corner and to the right, a little different location for us. Um, and we hope you can, can stay and continue the conversation with Hannah. So join me again in thanking her for speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.